You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In the opening week of our study into the book of Daniel, Philip Edwards will set the scene for this exciting book revealed in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We hope you enjoy today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can register for future modules, study our past modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow our live stream on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome to our study this evening. Uh, it's the first uh, in a four-week series on Daniel. Uh, let's just pray before we start our study. Then, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your desire to. Uh, teach us to speak into our hearts, to communicate uh, more about yourself to us, that we might understand, that we might love you more. And Lord, we pray that you'd speak into our hearts regarding uh, this exciting book and reveal some of the truth that's found in it to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, how I plan to teach this, uh, I'll briefly uh, explain... uh, Uh, each lesson to you it'll be broken down into the 12 chapters so to do 12 chapters in four weeks or eight lessons as it were some weeks are going to take two or three chapters and we're going to do the first three chapters this evening so we'll do one uh, before the break and then two after the break chapters two and three after I'll briefly explain each chapter and then we're going to have the chapter read to us so we get a full understanding of it. So listen as carefully as you can to it, because I won't go into lots of detail about it. I'll let the, the Bible talk for itself in respect to that. And then what I want to do is pick up one or two points. There is so much one could teach on from this. You just pick up the one or two points within the time that we've got. And then uh, I try and allow some time for any questions that might arise from what you've heard or uh, things that you've been thinking of if you've done some reading Uh, on your own prior to the lesson. Okay, we're going to do chapter one then tonight of Daniel. I won't have it read yet. I'm going to do a little bit of an intro to it just to set the story for you. Then we'll listen to it and then uh, we'll discuss and, and, and teach from that. I want to start the story with the historical context of it. Um, the kingdom of Israel and Judah Uh, were a united nation for only a very short period of time, for about something like 120 years. So when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, God gave them a set of laws, which was we could call the constitution. He promised them a land. They had their own religion. They had their own language, as it were. And so it constituted that they could become a nation. They had grown in number several millions by the time the exodus came and so God said I'm going to call you a nation, the nation of Israel. The nation split then uh, after about 120 years. It only had three kings didn't it? It had King uh, uh, Saul first and then David followed him and after David there was Solomon. Uh, King Saul was on the throne for about 20 years Uh, David and Solomon were on the throne for about 40 years apiece. So the history of the nation, when it uh, divided and split, was only about 120 years old. 
And that was about a thousand years BC. The Northern Kingdom, remember, consisted of 10 tribes and that was called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which took on the name Judah, was two tribes. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin constituted Judah. After about 200 years, the northern kingdom of Israel and the ten tribes were taken into captivity by the Assyrians, never to return. It is though, and the, the Bible explains it like, God divorced himself from them because of their idolatry and because of their rebellion and their adultery, really, to God. So he, he just let them go. But he maintained the, the two southern uh, tribes as his kingdom. They continued for about 130 years after uh, the northern tribes were taken into captivity by the Assyrians uh, the story we pick up with Daniel starts where uh, the Babylonians have come to capture, as it were, uh, Judah, which will, later we'll call it Israel. Sorry about that, but that's what just happened in the history of it all. It was called Israel, then it was called Judah, then it went back to being called Israel again. So the Babylonians came to capture it, and it, it lasted a period of about 12 years, this capturing uh, first he went to the city of Jerusalem and he sacked the city and he took all the, the bright people with him, some of the royal family with him, and he plundered the temple. But he left the, the nation, as it were, still a nation, and he left the king there, the king they had, for about another 12 years. And, uh, but he went back after and just, and just destroyed the whole country and, and took it all from them. So the story of Daniel takes place right after this first attack by the Babylonians onto Jerusalem where they plundered the city. As I said, they took some of the young men uh, who were bright and uh, they thought we will use the brightest that we've got and put them in our own palace and train them up and, and it, it's good, it's what you do. If, if you've got bright people in another nation that you capture, you just bring them in and you put them to work for you. Daniel was one of these uh, four young men. I say four, uh, perhaps there were more, but Daniel had three close friends with him. Uh, being taken into captivity, Daniel was given a new name. They tried to uh, cause them to forget everything that went on in Israel and uh, Jewish people and tried to make them like Babylonians. So one of the first things they did was give them all a new name. So they gave him the name Belteshazzar. We won't call him that, because the Bible doesn't call him that. It calls him Daniel all the way through. Yet, the three young men that were his friends with him, they were all given uh, Babylonian names, yet we call them by their Babylonian names. Sorry about the confusion here. So we call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So we call them by their Babylonian names, yet we'll always call Daniel by his Hebrew name. The book then, for us, it tells of the struggle of maintaining one's faith, one's commitment to God, in a place where you're in captivity or your conquerors aren't allowing you to express your religion. And we see with these four young men how they remained faithful to God and they just stood firm, sometimes in very difficult circumstances. So that's one of the things that the book of Daniel does for us. The design of the book, 
Mm. It's simple, really. The first six chapters of the book, they tell the stories about these uh, four young men. Uh, then 7 to 12, it speaks about the visions that Daniel had regarding the future. The book uh, has an interesting feature in it, in that the first chapter is written in Hebrew, the next six chapters are written in Aramaic, and then the final chapters go back to being written in Hebrew again. Now, we can suggest some reasons why this is, but of course, a lot of these things we don't know. It wasn't explained, it's not written down anywhere, but we just, we, we know it as a historical fact, but there it is. Aramaic was the common language of lots of empires at that time. So that is what the Babylonians spoke, and that's what Daniel and his friends had to learn and speak in this uh, new land where they were. These boys, when they were taken into captivity, were probably about 14 years of age at the time, fairly young. And so uh, through the story, I'll be telling you the ages of Daniel at different times, because whenever we see the stories or read the stories, they're always, they always look like young, vigorous men. Well, they weren't actually young, vigorous men. Daniel didn't go into the lion's den until he was about 80 years of age. So there you go. I don't know what pictures you have in your children's books about Daniel, but he was well-aged at that time. So I'll just re re relay this uh, to you. The first section, really, the stories of this young, these young men, is, is a narrative. It's just stories about them. Uh, the second part is all about uh, vision. Also, chronologically, the first six chapters run through events and parallel with that from seven to the end uh, is the chronological order running in parallel with it. So it's actually uh, a little bit confusing because we like to start a story at the beginning and go to the end and each event should follow on from the other. That doesn't happen. Uh, and you wonder why, why these things are happening. So the first six chapters is a narrative of their lives and the, the following six chapters is run in parallel with that where different things happen regarding the visions because it looks like all these things happened then there were the visions. Well, that wasn't true. So anyway, I don't want to confuse you too much. Okay, just the idea that we've got two stories running together chronologically. The first part of the book, well, some people, see, the more you read about this, sometimes the more confusing it gets. Some people date uh, the, uh, the writing of the book about 600 years before Christ, when some of these events took place. Others say, oh, no, it was all written after the event, hundreds of years later. So we don't know, really, and I don't know what to suggest to you. I think I probably settle for the idea that some of it was written in Aramaic and it was written in Babylon and some of it was written, why it was written in Hebrew, it was written in Israel later. That's probably a sensible suggestion of why it ended up in the two languages. So some of it was written when it was happening and some of it was written looking back, which meant that Daniel could have only written the first bit, not the second bit because Daniel never went back to live in Israel. He stayed in captivity all the time in a foreign land. He never went back to Israel. Okay, 
just listen now to uh, the first chapter. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Okay, I hope that was uh, clear to you all. Uh, normally if a person reads, they don't read as quickly as that. And so uh, getting through each chapter week by week, it would take a real chunk of the teaching time. So we decided to do it like that. And he, he reads well and clearly, so I hope you're able to follow that. There'll be two more sessions like that in the uh, second lesson tonight. So, Daniel and his friends then, like I said, probably around 14 when they were taken into captivity. Wise men. They were members of possibly David's royal family. They were well-educated already and they were smart, and that's why they were taken to be used in Babylon, in the royal palace. They were pressured, to some extent, to change their culture, because uh, they were Jewish and they wanted them to be Babylonians. So uh, they changed their name, and we read there, one of the things they did, they tried to make them eat the food that they were eating. 
this caused a bit of a problem for Daniel and his friends because if they ate what they were supposed to eat, it would have uh, violated the Jewish law about not eating certain meats and so on. And so uh, what they did, um, they appealed to the person who was responsible for them for that not to happen. It put them in great danger. They were interested in what God thought, keeping God's laws, doing what was right in the sight of God, even if it cost them their own lives. You see, as Christians, there has to be red lines somewhere in our lives. We have to draw these lines because increasingly the world pressures us to compromise, to take steps back. It's fine, I understand there's a place for compromise, but there's a place where we say, no, I don't compromise on this. And they were happy to fit into the culture, to have their names changed. Their names, originally Daniel and the others, well, they were all in respect to having faith in God. The names they had to take on were about the worship of these heathen gods, we would call them. That's what their names ended up meaning. So they were prepared to do that, prepared to do other things, learn a new language, learn different cultures, change their code dress, I imagine, lots of things. But when it came to breaking the law of God, they said, we're not going to do this. The poor man that was in charge of them, he was quite worried, wasn't he? Because unless, unless they did what he said, he would be in trouble. He, he would perhaps lose his job, even lose his head in those days. The book, it tells Daniel's story, but really it's telling us about God. We could say that for everything in the Bible. We read about different personalities, different characters, whether it's Moses, whether it's Abraham, and we think, this is all about Abraham, but really it's always all about God, showing us how God deals with people, how he deals with us. The purpose then of the book is to reveal God. It's to reveal his character and his purposes. It is to reveal his working in the world for the good of his people. You see, you are very important to God. As a Christian this evening, of all the peoples of the world, you are special. And his purposes are being worked out with you on our behalf. We are with God in this whole process. What God is doing, we are included in it. We are his people. We see something of his sovereign power in the history of man. That God raises up who he's going to raise up and puts down who he's going to put down. He establishes kingdoms. And he says when a kingdom will be powerful and when it won't be powerful. God is sovereign in the whole of these things. From the very start of this chapter, we're confronted with the Lord's sovereignty. Over events in history, we see that, but also the Lord's sovereignty in our, our human circumstances. We read in Daniel's life that God did this for Daniel and God did that. And yet at the same time, we see him working amongst the nations. Daniel it's very clear that it is God who orchestrated the fall of Jerusalem. It says this in Daniel 1 and just the second verse. And the Lord delivered, it says, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, 
into his, that's Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians because God said it would. And the, the other ten tribes uh, in the north, they fell to the Assyrians when God said they would. Our nation was a great nation if we're talking about Britain and, and how God raised us up. God raised us up. And when it was a time for God to put us down, he put us down. And we see other nations rise up. God is sovereign in all of this. This is what this book tells us. Not only with his own people is he sovereign, but he's sovereign with all the empires of the world. Everything is under his control. God is also sovereign in all the details of our life. Sometimes we think, can God really be interested that I do this and I don't do that? That I, I go here and I don't go there? Is he really, really that interested? We see this uh, several times in here. It appears that God is favourable to the way that Daniel is received. When he says, I don't want to eat this food... The person could have just said, get him out of here and replace him with someone. He knew nothing about him. And he said, you're just a headache to me. If I don't do what the king tells me to do, I'm in big trouble. So get out. No, he doesn't. God works on this person. So he shows favour for no reason to Daniel. He didn't even know him. For no reason. It says this in Daniel 1, 9 and 10. Now God had caused the official to show uh, favour and sympathy to Daniel. God had caused it to happen. It's a thing that we call common grace, isn't it? Where God works in the life of ordinary people, not his own people. It's all grace. I mean, it's common because they're not born again, I understand that, or they're not Christians or God's people. Now, God had caused the official to show favour and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned you food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of it. He knew what it would cost him. Well, despite the diet of vegetables, it appears that the four young men looked better than all the others that ate all the other food. Amen. Praise the Lord, all the vegetarians and vegans shout. We knew this from the beginning. We told you that. Okay, well, uh, be that as it may. Uh, uh, they were healthier and stronger, but I think God had something to do with that. I think God was somehow sustaining them and nourishing them and blessing them in other ways, despite not them not eating certain foods. And then in Daniel 1 and 15, it says, at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal fruit. God also acts on behalf of them in helping them with their studies. Now, for any young people who are going through their examinations, this is a perfect verse to stand on, isn't it? Okay, it says in Daniel 1.17, to these young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kind. So we see two things here. You can't just understand visions and dreams. That's a supernatural gift of God. You just can't do that. It's what God does to you. But in their studies, in their learning of the language and the culture, it said God helped them. He just gave them uh, the desire to study. 
which is what we need first, and then he helped them with the bits that were difficult. He just uh, anointed them in this way. So there's a, a partnership, as it were, in our lives with God. God does his part, but he never leaves us, so he does it all. We enter into a partnership with God. E. Stanley Jones, you might have heard that name or read something of him, great theologian. He describes the divine human partnership in this way. I really like what he's written. It says this, God comes close to his children in a way that leaves them free to think and act, yet in a way that awakens the personality to aliveness and alerts of mind and spirit. You ask God to help you, then if you think he's going to do it, he's not. But what he'll do is work with you in helping you to achieve. But it's not as though he's doing it at all. You seem to be doing all the work. As I prepare these studies, it surely appears to me that I'm doing all the work here. But I know it's not true. Because there's some stuff here that's difficult to understand. And I'm thinking, I don't get this. I don't see how it all fits together. But then God is helping in what we're doing. He says, his guidance is always sufficiently obvious to be found, but not so obvious that it does away with the necessity of thought and discriminating insight sometimes God doesn't show you everything. You have to work at it. You have to apply yourself to it. His secrets are always open secrets. Open, yet sufficiently secret to make us think. The kind of partnership to guide us without overriding us is a task that only divine wisdom can accomplish. We would not expect anything less of the God who loves us and anything else would be unworthy of him. It's true, isn't it? It's like a father helping a child, but not overdoing it, like saying, now sit there and I'll do your homework for you. He's working with the child. So at the end, the child thinks, look what I've done. But of course, this mind of the father, this guidance of the father has brought the child to that place. And that's what God is like with us. He asks us to do something, never takes our eye off us for a minute and just guides us through the whole process. And then when we finish, we're thinking, oh, I did a good job of that. Of course you did. And that's what he wants you to do. Only God can do that. In his wisdom, he does that. The first chapter then that we've looked at tonight, it, it climaxes with King Nebuchadnezzar testing all of these young men. Um, I don't suppose he did it for one minute. Uh, I don't suppose he did anything himself for a minute. Uh, other, other people would have done it. Uh, the text says that they were ten times better than anyone else. Now, I take into account that Daniel might have written this, but I'm not suggesting <laughs> for one minute he's lying to us. But if I'm going to write a report about me, it's going to be a bit glowing, is it? It's not going to be like, these are all the things I did wrong and these are all the mistakes I made. I mean, we just don't do that when we share. We just let those, we don't, we don't lie. We just don't say those bits. We just leave them. Anyway, but I'm going to say that it was true about what he said anyway. 
So these four are now established in the king's mind. He sees them as different, talented, able. Well, actually, he only sees Daniel. It's Daniel that has the audience. So Daniel now has to take his friends with him. They're his friends, and he has to take them with him. God will use these men to fulfill his purposes. I don't like the word to use. Uh, I don't think God uses us. God works with us. Uh, and he draws us into this partnership. Uh, we can say, I don't want to go. I don't want to be involved. But he persuades us to come. I often think of Moses when I think of this, how he needed a little bit of persuasion. It's like, mm, I think you will come with me. And uh, so in the end, uh, the persuasive powers of God were just too good for him. And so he draws Moses. Uh, but these are not resistant people. Daniel's not resisting God. Uh, he's quite happy to move along with what God is wanting to do. So God will work with them to fulfill his purposes. Hmm. It's interesting. He's just a boy. He's probably no more than 17, 18 years of age when this first thing took place. And God sees this young boy who's a captive in a foreign land and he's going to work with him to bring about tremendous change in a, in, in a global picture really when you think how powerful these nations were. So you don't know what plans God has for you. Now it might not be anything grand but we mustn't be the ones that write ourselves out of the story. We must be open to what God wants to do with us and the influence he wants us to have. God takes great pleasure in taking the nobodies of this world to do something because what he wants to say is, I did this, I did this, I took someone as weak and as broken as this and I did this because the greatest example is the Apostle Paul. And so, at first to the name of Christ, would have done anything to just remove that name, he takes this man and he starts to work with him, work with him. We have to yield ourselves to God, for God to work with us, and he wants to. I've been saying for years, the answer's always yes, always yes, the answer's always yes. It's never no, when we, should I do this? The answer's yes. Will you help me with this? The answer is yes. You never know what God is doing in opening up a way if you say yes. The last thing possibly in this uh, chapter, um, it opens up the idea of Christians uh, thinking their place in the world we have to be careful as Christians, we don't just withdraw ourselves thinking everything out there is evil and I mustn't get involved. I would have thought there wasn't much that wasn't evil in Babylon actually because it's the type of the city of sin, isn't it? Babylon, it's got that name, that's what it represents constantly through the Bible. And so he finds himself in this city of sin and he, he, he involves himself in the city at the very level of the throne where this, well, we're going to learn more about this man, Nebuchadnezzar, but he's a very uh, bombastic, arrogant sort of guy. And so he's brought right into the centre of this. And sometimes we've got to work out, hang on, I can't withdraw myself as a Christian from the world. 
I've got to come into it and involve myself with it, and yet there must be red lines, and uh, I must walk with God in this. And you'd be surprised what God would take you into and what he would expect you to do and who he would expect you to work with and talk to and share your life with and rub shoulders with because God wants to take us into the world. Daniel and his three friends, they engaged readily into this process. They assimilated into this different culture. I'm sure in time they looked a little bit like the Babylonian people. But like I said, there were red lines they weren't to cross. So this serves an example for us of that verse we know to be in the world, but not of the world. It challenges us to think, am I withdrawing so much? All my friends are Christians. I only go to Christian things. I only do Christian events. Uh, I feel like a fish out of water whenever I'm with non-Christians. I feel awkward, awkward in the company. Have you withdrawn yourself too much? Just think about this. I think this chapter opens that very discussion for us. Okay, that brings us to the end of our first lesson on this. We'll have a little break, and then we'll uh, launch into chapters two and three. Thank you. Okay, welcome back. In this second part, we're going to deal with uh, two chapters, chapter two and chapter three. We're going to find out, the first chapter was really the prologue to just put it all in place, to set the scene, as it were, to understand some of these things. Now, from chapter two, right the way through the book, it's, it's quite dramatic throughout. It moves fairly quickly. It starts in chapter two with the king of uh, Babylon having a dream. And it turns out that in the dream only Daniel can interpret the dream. We read in chapter one that, that God had given him special giftings and the ability to interpret dreams and visions. The dream he has, and we'll go into this in a lot more detail, I'm just outlining it for you for when we get to listen to it. So uh, I'm explaining now, so when we listen to the, the actual reading of chapter 2, it'll all fit into place. He has a dream yeah, of a, uh, a huge statue that's made of four different types of metal. They symbolise the sequence of the kingdom ahead of the Babylonian kingdom. Then he sees this rock flying in and it smashes the statue to pieces and then it, it fills the whole scene and becomes a mountain. The dream, uh, is uh, it sets the scene really, it's the symbolism uh, that is going to continue through the whole of the book. The book is full of dreams and symbols, but this basic story about... Uh, four nations that follow, or four empires really, that follow on after uh, Babylon, uh, the three that follow on after. Um, this, this dream, this vision appears again and again and again. It sort of sets uh, the storyline for us. So I'm going to put now again, uh, go to the recorder here and play for you chapter two. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. 
Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went in to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation, and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. 
The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor, and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Okay. Quite a chunk of reading, so you understand why well, we let somebody else do it for us. And uh, he speaks quite quickly, and uh, we have to follow it, but uh, it's important if you're going to study a book like this that you do hear the book actually read. Daniel explains then what the, the vision the king has. Uh, the statue resembles a train of human kingdoms following on from uh, Babylon. They will fill the earth with violence one after the other. They will become worse and worse. And then, of course, then God comes at the end. His kingdom is established and he deals with all of these uh, violent kingdoms, really violent empires in his way. When Daniel is faced with a truly desperate situation, 
I wonder why the king wanted whoever interpreted the dream to tell him what the dream was. I wonder if God made it so that he forgot it. Uh, usually if we get a, a dream that's vital, that's important, that God is communicating something, um, you wake up and the rule is you write down straight away what it is. Otherwise, dreams have this uh, way of evaporating away from you so that even by several hours after you've woken, you struggle to do it. So the secret is you, you write them down. He had no idea what the dream was, yet he knew that God had spoken to him. The kings at this time uh, in these ancient countries believed that that's how the gods, their little gods, communicated with them by dreams. And so they believed that the god, gods, they didn't know who, was communicating to them. But God had caused it that he wouldn't remember the dream. So now this is a real test, isn't it? Not only to bring your interpretation of the dream, but to tell me what the dream I had was first. And so Daniel, uh, he's put in a real desperate situation. Tell me the dream, or, and then interpret it, or you die. Well, the enchanters came along, didn't they? And they tried. they tried to talk him out of it. Tell us what the dream is, and we'll tell you what the answer is. And he said, oh, no, no, because you'll tell me any old thing just to you know, save your necks. He said, you tell me what the dream is, and I'll know then that what you're saying is genuine, and the gods are telling you what it's all about. I like Daniel. He's only young, remember, although he's a good bit older than when we started this story, but he doesn't panic. He doesn't, he doesn't despair of the situation. He goes back to his three friends and he says, right, guys, you know what you've got to do? You've got to start praying. Start praying that God will show us, one, what the dream is, and then give us the interpretation of the dream. Daniel 2 and 18. He urged them, to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. They're all under threat. The king is not happy with any of them. He thinks they're all charlatans and frauds and he's going to get rid of them and perhaps look for some others. But we get this response from Daniel, which is truly the biblical response to every crisis we ever meet, isn't it? It isn't to throw your hands up in despair and wail and cry. It's to go to your God, to shut yourself in and to start asking him for the answers. This is what Jesus has encouraged us to do. It says in Matthew 7 and 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock, and the door will be open unto you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be open to you. As I've been reading and studying this, my desire to pray has just risen. R reading about these people and their, uh, their contact with God and having God to just show them Everything they need to know is just, I just felt inspired by the whole thing. A failure to pray in a crisis, I do believe, affects the outcome. Now, God knows whether we're going to pray or not. 
And so you could say, well, in his foreknowledge, he predict, predicted what was going to happen, he determined what was going to happen. So we could go along it from, from that way. But from our perspective, if we fail to pray in a crisis, it won't work out. It won't work out. Because God desires us to seek him, as is the example here. And then when they get the answer, it's a bit over the top, isn't it? The way they praise God. I mean, <laughs> It goes on and on and on. Well, uh, it says something like this. I thank and praise you, O God, my Father. You have given wisdom and power and have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. And he just, he just keeps praising him and praising him and praising him. Well, his life was on the line, wasn't it? God came through. If they didn't have the answer to this thing, they were all dead. They were dead. And so no wonder they got really excited. But of course, when God does come through with the answer, and we know it's the answer, we were just filled with delight in what God has shown and what God is doing. He goes to the king, obviously, and explains everything to him. And the king knows instantaneously whether he had forgotten the dream or was just testing them, we don't know. But he knows, when he's told it, he knows it's the dream and he accepts uh, the, the revelation. He declares something about God. He doesn't know what he's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, but he says that your God then is the revealer of mysteries. He is the revealer of mysteries. When you read that in the Bible, the revealer of mysteries, it refers to what God has disclosed to us. The mystery in the Bible is not a puzzle to be solved. It is, not, it is not something to be uncovered as something that is mysterious. The mystery is something that God holds and then he reveals it. Remember Paul said that. He said, God has given to me the mysteries to explain them to you about what Jesus was all about and all of that. It's, the mystery is God showing us those things that he's kept hidden and secret. It says that he kept the salvation or the, the story of salvation hidden from the prophets. He kept it hidden from the angels. And then when the time was right, he revealed it. And it said, oh, how they would have loved to know this mystery. It is the explaining of something, the revealing of something. Maybe there's more to be revealed. It's in here. I'm not saying there's anything new that God hasn't already stated, but perhaps it needs revelation from God. There's some still mysteries that God wants to open up to us from his word. So God first reveals the content to him of the dream and then the meaning of the dream. He's giving him insight of how history is going to unfold according to his sovereign plan. This is always a mystery, isn't it? How God's plan can unfold, yet we've already said he involves us in all of it. How does he get us to do all the things that he wants us to do without making it feel like he's making us do it, and yet we do it, and it gets to where he wants to be? It's like, we don't know, but we know he does it. 
Jesus will come on the day when it's appointed for him to come and everyone will be there in their place when it happens and somehow we will have all got there and we wondered how, God, how did you do this? It's as though he holds the whole thing, doesn't he? And he moves it all along in this wonderful, miraculous way. And we worry for a moment, the God of the universe that can do this and, and just determine everything that happens in everyone's life, every moment of every day, and be sovereignly in charge of all of that. Just, but we need, to, we need the preaching of this is that you understand God. Not you get to know Daniel, God bless Daniel, but we need to know God. What is God doing? How wonderful, big, enormous, powerful, great is this God that we serve? That there isn't anything in your life tomorrow that's going to happen that is going to be a surprise to him. He's already worked all through that. And so as you pray through your day, as you walk with your God, as you, you can rest in the assurance of that. And we know, looking back now, when Daniel said all these things, he was looking forward. None of these things had happened. These, these uh, empires that were going to rise up, none of it had happened. But from our perspective now, we see that everything he said has come to pass. He talks about this head of gold, the Babylonian Empire he's talking about there. It, it, it went from 606 to 539 BC, 67 years. It was nearly the whole time that Daniel was in captivity in Babylon for the whole of that time. And then it's followed then by this uh, Medo-Persian Empire, which is the top half, which is silver. Now, what happened to get rid of the Babylonians? The Medes and the Persians had to come together in an alliance that's how we get the Medo-Persian. And it's interesting, the top part has two arms. And this is silver. It isn't as powerful or as great, but it has two arms to it, Medo-Persian. And so the Medo-Persian comes and they displace the Babylonians and they come into power. And Daniel is still around when this happens because we know that the kings change and Daniel is there through the changing of these kings. The Medo-Persians only lasted for about eight years as an empire, a world empire, from 539 to 531 BC. And then we move on to the, the belly and the thighs that are made of bronze. And this talks about the uh, Grecian Empire. This was um, raised up really by um, Alexander the Great. Uh, we all know about him, but his, his powerful reign was only for about 12 or 13 years. And then it was divided down, and we're going to read a lot or study a lot more about this in later weeks. But it was the Hellenistic Empire, really, that was, which was the Greek Empire. All of these things that happened was in preparation for Jesus Christ's coming into the earth and for the establishment of the church. We know what the Grecian Empire did. It, it enabled people all to speak the same language. They were a very cultured, uh, educated people, and they were around for about 385 years, just about as long as God needed them to educate the world in that part, or the known world, uh, as it was. So when the, when the gospel came, 
it would, it would spread like fire quickly because everyone would be speaking the same language as it were. After the Grecian Empire, which was uh, uh, 531 to 146 BC, we see the Roman Empire then come in, uh, 146 BC to AD 476. So they were around for over 600 years. We know that the Roman Empire in the West was defeated then by the Gauls, but there was still the Roman Empire in the in the east, as it were, uh, Constantinople and all that round there until the uh, Persian people overthrew it. But that went on for about another 100 or, uh, sorry, 1,500 years after the one in the west had fallen. And we know that if the Greek people spread uh, education and learning and language in the known world, the Romans opened up roads all the way through. So the gospel, which could be communicated fairly easily, was assisted by all the roads and the uh, ways that were opened up for the gospel to be taken throughout the known world. And then, of course, at, at the right time, Jesus comes and he is that stone that comes. So interesting gold, silver, bronze and iron. It's becoming less in value it's actually becoming more and more violent as a people. It's building up in its violence and its wickedness within the world until we get to the Roman Empire. All of these will be crushed, he says. All of these empires will be crushed. This, this stone will come in and shatter the whole thing. And then this stone will build, grow into a great mountain and fill the whole world. That's the interpretation that he gives King Nebuchadnezzar. He says the king is amazed at Daniel. He's amazed. One, he could not only interpret the dream but give him the content of the dream. Now, I, 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 I struggle to believe this next part, knowing what King Nebuchadnezzar was like. But he falls prostrate on the floor and he, he pays homage to Daniel. I mean, can you see that happen? I can't see that. I just, I mean, it must have happened. It says so in the good book. But he did that? Why? I don't know. He was a f strange mixture of men, this Nebuchadnezzar. One minute he's just, well, we're going to read more about what he is, but he just thinks he's everything. And then he's, he's just honouring them revering God for who God is, a strange man. Daniel then, he asked the king to appoint his three friends. Isn't that amazing? Because <laughs> he, he doesn't know about his friends. Nebuchadnezzar knows nothing. Oh, he's tested them and he's, they've come out on top with, with Daniel in the test, but he hasn't had any workings with them. And, and so, but, but Daniel now, is really special in Nebuchadnezzar's eyes. He actually is part of his court. He's close to him on a daily basis. But Daniel doesn't ignore his friends. He said, oh, I've got these three friends of mine. Can you appoint them to high positions in the empire? And he does, but not in, uh, in, in, in the capital, but out in the outlying areas. But they're given important positions. Daniel stays in court, as it were. That's chapter 2. We move now swiftly on to chapter 3.
I want to outline it just quickly and then we'll go back to our, um, our recording. This chapter uh, has no mention of Daniel. It's just not in there at all. The focus is on these three friends that he has. It's about them. And it's about their refusal to bow the knee to an idol that Nebuchadnezzar erects. It's like the, the statue we read about in chapter 2, and it, reps, it represents him and his imperial power, but it's a little bit different. And so we see, because, because they won't worship the idol, these three young men, they're persecuted. They're thrown into a fiery furnace. We all know this story very, very well. But God delivers them from death. Does not just deliver them from the fiery furnace, but everything about death that it represented. They're exalted by the king, who again acknowledges God. Let's then go to chapter 3 and listen to it. An image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the god we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, 
We want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. It's a great story, isn't it? You know what I mean? It's just so, yeah, just so startling. I mean, God is amazing. God is amazing. This event happened about 20 years after the previous event where he has the dream and he doesn't understand the dream. So from chapter, from chapter 2 to chapter 3, we've, we've moved on 20 to 30 years. We've heard nothing about these young men, what they're doing. None of it is recorded. I'm sure they were representing God wherever they were. They were judging, they were leading, they were doing it in a, a godly way. We find here he decides after all this time he's going to build this statue that he dreamt about all those years ago. He doesn't build it in the different metals that the dream was in. It's all of gold. It's, it's all of him. It's all of Babylon. Mm. Why does he build it anyway? Reading around the subject, some have suggested the empire was, was extending and what they ended up with was a lot of people who worshipped other gods, uh, other religions, and there was some... Um, I don't know, the empire was becoming a bit fragile. He had to do something to, to keep it all together. That's the awkward thing about when you start something and it grows, it's hard to control it. Uh, it seems to get away from you. And I think the empire was getting away from it a little bit. And so he would have got counsel and advice or perhaps he just thought the idea up for himself. 
that if he made this uh, image and then it would draw everyone's idolatry and worship into worship in this and this image represented the empire and so they could all feed into worshiping the empire as it was unifying all the people together it stood about 90 feet tall it's, uh, if you think of things that they build today they build them a lot taller than that but in those days that was quite tall wasn't it to build something 90 feet in the plains that people would have all seen it and gathered to it it's it's dedication the opening of it is a very pompous affair uh, you you get this by the way that the the writer has written it he exaggerates certain things all the time he talks about the officials that were to be present and there's a list of them and he mentions them several times and did you notice about the musical instruments it just went on and on and on, repeating it again and again and again. What is the point of that? I mean, uh, I did some, again, research into this. There's volumes written about what these, what these uh, instruments represent, and uh, people have thought a lot about it. I thought, well, I'm, I'm not going to bring that to this because we could get lost in this in no time at all. Uh, but it is the idea that it's pompous. It's a big thing. He's making it a big, big thing, and it's about him. And he wants it all, you know, just over the top, really. <laughs> Daniel's three friends refuse to bow. They refuse to pay homage in the same way they refuse to eat the food. This is another red line. We're not going to do this. We don't bow to any God apart from the God of heaven. And as a result, they are thrown into the furnace. We've heard it all there. I'm not going to go into detail of that. This probably is the most powerful example in Scripture of any deliverance. Uh, I mean, there's lots of deliverance, whether it's simply deliverance from a demonic thing or deliverance from a storm or deliverance from this. But this, is, this stands alone, doesn't it, as a deliverance. As you're listening to it, you go, wow, wow I, just, I can't believe this heating the thing up seven times greater. It's like God goes, we're going to go over the top with this one. We're going to make it as awful, as horrendous, as terrible, and I'll just show you what I can do. I just want to... Sh well, God never shows off, but it's like he's showing off, isn't it? It's just like he's just showing, and he's just doing something that's so simple and easy for him to do. Even the people putting these poor guys into the furnace, they die outside because of such heat, which is like, and they're, they're big guys. It says they're the strongest guys that, that can do this. What faith and courage these men have. Just like, can you, can you hear yourself making this? If we die, we die. But bow the knee, Never, never. What a courageous talk. Daniel 3, 17 and 18. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. See how respectful they are. 
O king. They're not being stroppy or rebellious or difficult or they're just saying, we don't do this. We don't do this. And if we die, then we die. But then the actual deliverance is even more amazing. It just is. It says, the hair on their bodies has not even been singed. Their hair was not singed. The fire had not harmed their bodies at all. Their robes were not scorched. And there was no smell of fire on them at all. There's just something else, isn't it? Just something. Just God, you are a delivering God without a shadow of a doubt. Nebuchadnezzar, I don't know whether the furnace, they said they were put in from the top. So they must have stood a long way back because of the very heat of the thing. But it was so structured that somehow there was an opening because Nebuchadnezzar could see into the furnace. And of course, as he looks in, he sees four and, and not three. But you would have thought, and he sees them walking around. It's like the first thing you would have done was fallen on the floor and died. And that would have been it. You know, no one would have walked around. He can't believe what he's seeing. There's four and they're walking around. And he doesn't know what the fourth one looks like. He, could, he says he looks like a son of the gods. He's not like a human being, he's saying. He's, it's just something amazing about this person. Were they enjoying a manifest presence of the pre-incarnate Christ? They call it a theophany, don't they? A theophany where Christ appeared before he came in human form as a child born in Bethlehem. But in the Old Testament, possibly he appeared in human form before. Don't know. We don't know. We don't know if any of those appearances were a theophany. We don't know if it's a reality or it's not. But it seems that this man, this son of the gods, Somehow his presence is shielding them from the fire. Do you ever let your imagination just, just run on a little bit beyond the scriptures? Do you ever think, mm, I wonder what they thought in the furnace? <laughs> I wonder if they could see, because I could imagine if it's just all fire, you can't see anything. I wonder if they could have seen each other or or seen this son of the gods? <laughs> did, they, did they laugh at what was going on, thinking, this is something else? Did they realise what was going on? No one has ever stood in this place before, or ever since, where these, this man have stood. Never. A unique experience that these men enjoyed. Who were they? Nobody's. I love it. I love it. How the Bible again and again and again just takes nobodies and does such wonderful things and raises people up because they are prepared to take their stand. They're prepared to put their God first. Daniel 3 provides a classic case of 
fallen humanity's tendency to worship idols. Why do they do that? Why? If man is so important, why make an idol? What for? What's the purpose of it? Is it because we're all worshippers? We're built to worship. And so if we won't worship God to satisfy our need to worship, we will find an idol to worship and worship that. We might worship a person or a place or a thing. We might create something to worship, but it's something we can devote our lives to. Seeing on the news that incident in Paris with all the footballers, I think to some extent they must worship football. I mean, I'm sure there's ordinary people. I've been to football matches and other matches, and I don't worship it, so I'm not saying that everyone is. But I got the idea that quite a few of those people actually worship, that they would go anywhere and pay anything to just see the team that they have set up as something that they must worship, they must cheer, they must rejoice over, they must find excitement in. And it could be anything in our lives that we set up. Instead of trusting, as it were, in a God to satisfy us and meet our needs, we haven't got him, so we'll create something else. And in a strange way, we want it to satisfy us and to give us a joy beyond what we can naturally enjoy, some idol in our lives. Also in this chapter, we are reminded about the persecution. These people are hating the Jews. Why do they hate the Jews? Not because they're Jews. They hate them because they're God's people. And it's not the people that hate them, it's the devil that hates them. Are you surprised when you're persecuted? Are you surprised when people don't like you? In fact, if you got to a place where people are all right with you and everyone likes you, I would think there's something wrong with you. Sorry, I didn't mean that. Just, just you're making it too easy to get on with. You don't stick out sometimes and just say things like you should say, or not to just to be offensive and rude, but just to just to make a point that you're not like them, you're somewhat different. Satan has always been persecuting God's people. Remember there at the fall with Adam and Eve, he said that a seed of the woman will come and destroy you. And so he's, he's targeted on God's people all the time to destroy the seed of the woman constantly. I was looking about persecution uh, in the world today and Open Doors, some of you might have heard of that ministry, they stated that in 2021, 340 million Christians, that's one-eighth, face high levels of persecution and discrimination because of their faith. That's a lot of people. 340 million throughout the world. One-eighth of the Christian population have a hard time because they say they're Christians. And I looked up the figure that were martyred in 2020 and the official number is 4,761. 
there are registered cases of people who were put to death because they testified that Jesus Christ was their saviour. Now, there could have been a lot more, but obviously these, they don't exaggerate figures because that's not to their advantage. And I found this little verse in Galatians 4 and 29. It says, At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. I'll read that again to you. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. Even within the church itself, nominal Christians, they persecute those who have a charismatic persuasion, ridiculing them, mocking them. You know that expression, happy clappies. Well, that's not to praise them, is it? That's a derogatory term. You see, those that are not wanting to embrace the spirit will always mock those that want to. We should be careful. Finally, in this chapter, um, again, it brings up that thing about church and state. The New Testament is clear that Christians should submit to authority. These three young men, they were very respectful to the king. O king, they said, O king, you have set this decree, you are in charge, this is it. We will serve, suffer the punishment, but we will not bow the knee. We're not looking to get out of this thing. So Christians should submit to authority. Just lately in the whole COVID thing and should we wear masks and should we shut our churches down, this sort of came up again, doesn't it? And we saw this uh, reaction against authority as like, we're not going to do what authority tells us. Mm, I think there was something wrong in that. I, I don't want to criticise or, or judge these people, but for me, if the authority were going to require something of me to get us through a crisis that would help the nation, then I would pay that price. I would submit to that. There will be a point, though, where they ask us to do something where we'll say, I'm sorry, this I'm not going to do. It's one of those red line things again. We need to show proper respect to those uh, politically that have authority over us. We shouldn't mock or ridicule our leaders. Now, if they do a foolish thing, they do a foolish thing, and I understand that. And if we don't agree with what they do, then we don't agree with it. But every government has been raised up by God. Scripture says that. So we mustn't be disrespectful. We must think it's foolish, or this person is doing a foolish thing, but we have to be careful how we word that. As soon as the government starts to craft laws, though, that are anti-God, then we think differently, we act differently. If they contradict the will of God, then we become conscientious objectors. We say, no, my conscience doesn't let me do that. I'm sorry, I will have to go to prison if that's the case. I'll have to pay the fine. I will not do that. My conscience won't let me do it. And we have two options. We embrace the consequences, as these young men did. They didn't seem to have a way out. Or we leave this country, which is our nation. 
and we say, I can't live here under this rulership anymore. I've got to go somewhere else. I can't do this. So they didn't have the liberty to do that. It wasn't those sort of times. People do that all the time. We're hearing different nations that people are leaving uh, certain countries of the world because of the uh, dictatorial uh, you know, regimes that are there. And so um, we can learn a lot from this as Christians. There's lots to draw and gather from that. Well, that's our study finished uh, of those first three chapters tonight. Um, we can close down there. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please come on back next week for our second lesson in the Daniel module. If you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, you can do so by heading over to our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can make a secure online donation. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.